Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to episode 40 of Trundle Bed Tales, where we're going to be talking about one-room school equipment. But before we get into that, let's just do a little housekeeping. And remind you that if you want to listen, you can not only just stream for through the computer, you can also enter the chat room if you have questions or comments. And you can call in either at 714-242-5253. That's 714-242-5253. Or toll-free, 1-877-633-9389. That's one eight seven seven six three three nine three eight nine, and you can either listen over the phone, or you can uh, uh, you can ask a question, or make a comment, or join the conversation. We'd be glad to have you. You can always catch other episodes of Trundle Bed Tales either as they air live or through the archive, either streaming on the website or you can download them for free from iTunes under the podcast. And there's links on how to do that right on both my blog's information page and on my website. And I want to remind everybody that the Laura's, Laura Ingalls Wilder's birthday is coming up February 7th. And we are going to once again be doing an on-air birthday party. This time, I want to people to share with me the stories either of how they got to be a Laura fan in the first place or their favorite Laura thing that you got to do. It might have been making a quilt with your grandmother or experimenting with recipes from the Little House cookbook or whatever it was. I hope that you will consider calling in to share it. And if not, you can go ahead and email it to me at info at com, and we'll get it as part of the story that way. And with that, I think that's just about all our housekeeping. So I'm going to go ahead and bring uh, Pam on the line. Pam Stover is one of my favorite people. I just love getting a chance to talk to her, so I'm glad that she agreed to come back on the show. And she is one of my very favorite one-room school people. So welcome to the show, Pam. Thank you, Sarah. It's great to be back. Well, we're so glad you are. Why don't you uh, go ahead and kind of tell people a little bit about yourself? Okay, well, I'm an assistant professor of music education at the University of Toledo, and that's in a Toledo, Ohio, not in Spain. When I travel <laughs> abroad, sometimes I have to clarify that now. And it is a great place to be, and I'm having fun exploring all the one-room schools in the area. Um which is kind of a surprise because oftentimes I'll just be driving around and, oh, there, there's a one-room school. And um, it's nice that it's 
schools have been preserved in this area. I got interested in one-room schools because my parents both came from Iowa, and they both went to one-room schools. And one of the schools was on um, on or near the farm that, that uh, my mom grew up on. And I got my grandmother's teaching books, and she talked about when she was teaching in the one-room schools. And when I found her music book, that ended up, sparking my interest in one-room schools and how they taught music because I knew my grandmother wasn't very musical. And so I wrote a whole dissertation on um, methods of teaching and materials and equipment in one-room schools. Well, it's just always so impressive what they were able to do with so little equipment. And they really had some very clever systems thought up. I think in some ways they worked better than the system we have now, but... Uh, so let's kind of just sort of dive in here to uh, some questions about that. Is there a lot of difference in the equipment that you've found across space and time in one-room schools? Because it seems like so many one-room school museums you go to, and they all try really hard to be identical no matter where or when they are. Yes, that's 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 an interesting observation because I've noticed that as well when I've gone to one room schools is sometimes they'll just put everything in the school or they'll they'll want it to look like 1920 or like 1950 when the school closed. Um when I was doing my research, I was looking um it got to be too big and so I had to narrow it down because you cannot generalize what was happening in colonial times to what was happening in 1960. And I even found that what was happening in the West was very different than what was happening on the East Coast as the pioneers went through and settled. Um, different states in the United States were developed at a different rate, and so the schools could be, even in a neighboring state to the West, could be five or ten years behind in equipment or, or building materials. And that was very interesting. I focused on 1990 to 1950, or 1890 to 1950 in the Midwest states. And when I was doing much of this research, I was living in Pennsylvania, and I found that Pennsylvania did not um, operate in the same way as the agricultural states in the Midwest. So there was a, a big difference in states that had coal mining as their main um, occupation versus agriculture. And then when you go out to the west and you have all the range and the and um cattle, it's even more sparse and and even more interesting and different. You did have one room schools in some urban areas as as the towns would grow up. Sometimes the town would grow up around a school. It's interesting um although I live in Toledo, I send student teachers across the border up to Michigan to Bedford, and they have a beautiful brick one-room school that I'm just dying to get inside. I went past it, and they take they take all their fourth graders there, and Banner School. And so here I am, and of course it's raining because it's always raining whenever I'm at one-room schools, and I'm peeking in the windows, <laughs> and I can't see much. But the architecture on this this school is just absolutely beautiful. It looks like it should have been in a town or a city much older than it is. And um, the the children, I think, probably have a program that they go to because some of the music teachers there were asking what songs that I could teach them that, that the students would do in the one-room schools. And, of course, I had a whole packet full of those. Um, and they said that all of their students go 
the school. And then, you know, just driving around in one of the suburbs in, in Toledo, in Maumee, there's a little historical village, and there's a one-room school there, too. And that one's the white clapboard kind. It's not made of brick. So you find differences in the architecture and the materials. Oh, the teaching methods are vastly different from time and space, too. And it's so important, I think, to make that point because what what I find a lot of times, especially when I'm presenting on one-room schools to older people, is they seem to sort of universalize their own experience that if they experienced a certain set of things in a one-room school, well, then that is what absolutely everybody across time and space experienced in a one-room school. But it was really a very um, diverse experience depending on the teachers you got and the location you were and and, and a bunch of other factors. So uh, it, it's, it's it hard. very even. Yeah. Even in the same township, you to go two miles down the road and you have a different teacher, and it can be totally different just because everything depended on the teacher. So it, it is, I think, an important point because, as I say, that the, and one that doesn't always get it come across. So your particular project, you were looking at Midwestern one-room schools, 1890 to 1950. What records did you access for this? Okay, so when I started, I first found um, Andrew Guilford's book. It's beautifully illustrated, and it was it was a federally funded research project. On, on American country schools, and it is beautiful, and he has examples from all kinds of time periods and all kinds of locations, and I used that to start with, and then I started going to state historical societies, and I found that I was at a disadvantage because I wasn't researching one particular school or one particular county or at one particular time because I wanted to have an overview focusing on music. Well, I found that I couldn't focus on music unless I knew an awful lot about all kinds of things in the schools, from the toilets to the chalkboards to, to what, whatever. Um, you, just, you have to know about the whole context. You just can't go in with that. So working in a state historical society was wonderful but also difficult because um, – they didn't have records that could generalize. I started looking through school law to see what kinds of things were required in schools. Um, and a lot of our myths about schools, like teachers couldn't be married, that's not mm-hmm. in most of the laws. Occasionally it would pop up here and there, but that's a myth. Um, mm-hmm. And some some other things really don't apply across the board. It might have been in one location or in one state or one right. time period. Uh where else did I look? I started looking uh, after after bombing out at some of the state histor- historical societies. I started going to local historical societies, the county and the town ones, to get more information about particular schools and just wherever I was. If I was traveling someplace, I would stop in at the county historical society and do some work. Um, I worked at the Library of Congress as well, and that was interesting um, to get some overviews. I was looking at some literacy programs there and other documents of equipment needed. So I really started working in the archives of the State Departments of Education, and those can be housed all over the place. And I was also looking at at, um, school districts as well. I had a couple of key figures that were very important in educating, educating teachers 
to teach in one-room schools. And so I went to the universities that held their archives as well. So I've been everywhere from the local um, historical society that might have their their archive in two shelves in the in the local library to the Library of Congress, and I've also done research abroad. A little bit on one-room schools, um, it's it's more difficult to find information there than it is in the U.S. It seems like this is a phenomenon that is got some romance and nostalgia connected to it, so people tend to keep some things. And it, it, it's interesting, too, I've because... A lot of these records being official school records, just like school records now, there are laws uh, pertaining to how long they're kept and where they're kept and that sort of thing. Right. But what I have found is they tend to ignore those laws completely and, and things get tossed out that aren't supposed to be and things aren't centralized where they're supposed to be. So it can make it really kind of frustrating dealing with, with research like this. It is. There's huge holes. I was really surprised um, once that the whole um, county that Champaign-Urbana, Illinois is in, that whole county, I believe it's Champaign County, um, all of their school records are housed at the Urbana Public Library. And they're in huge boxes, just like they were at, at a regular archive that you dig through the boxes. And so you can call them up and go and look through the teacher grade books because that district kept everything, and they apparently didn't have a fire. Lots of times got destroyed because of fires, and um, that's a big problem. It is. Okay, so one of the things that I know you found a lot about when you were working on this, as, as you were talking about context, was the standard school program. So why don't we talk a little bit uh, about what the standard school program was. Okay. Um, the standard school program was one of the first things uh, developed in several states to help the rural schools have the um, – what do I want to say? It, it was like an incentive program so that they would improve their schools with the quality of the teaching and the equipment and sanitary measures and things like that. It varied from state to state. Now, in Pennsylvania, their standard school program was set up to encourage consolidation, whereas mm. in Illinois and Iowa, it was set up to not encourage consolidation, but to encourage um, quality in the schools. And so a school inspector would go through and get points for different categories, and each state had a little different kind of a scorecard. It's kind of interesting. In Ohio, if you got to have so many points, then you could earn equipment from a standard school list. So uh, it's really good that they were, you know, trying to improve the schools. What, um, what kinds of things did they ask for these schools to have? Well, it was interesting. Most, And, of course, I'm going to generalize just a little bit because, as we said, it's, it's really hard to do this across time and space. Yes. But in general, and I have accessed um, standard school reports. I actually have the reports from the 1930s from the state of Illinois, of them. So it's very interesting to see what they um, came up with for their list. Um, Iowa had a list, most of the states had this list. 
they would look at the quality of the teacher. Had the teacher gone to normal school? Had they gone to the university? Had they um, had extra training? Sometimes the teachers would get points if they went to a reading circle or took a class in the summer or something like that. They got points for not how well the students did on tests, believe it or not since that's our standardization and that's where we're going in today's schools, that was not an issue at all Um, in any of the states. They didn't look at student achievement at all. They're looking at the qualities of the teacher, the qualities of the teaching, and the materials and safety. They looked at things like um, the toilet situation. Was there outhouses or chemical toilets? Um, Was there a separate one for boys and a separate one for girls? Um, where were they placed in consideration with the water supply? Um, what was the water supply? So you have those kind of sanitation issues. Um, they looked to see whether you had um, books and desks and equipment. So they could get points if they didn't have a double desk. Um, double desks were looked uh, upon um, with disfavor starting in about the 1930s, give or take depending on where you are. Um, It was interesting to see that lots of times they would talk about how many library books that they had. And in many areas, they would have a a box of books that would rotate from the county, and they would come to the school, and they could keep them for a year, and then maybe next year they would go to a different school, so the books would rotate a little bit. Um, Sometimes the library would consist of one small shelf, and that was that was it. Sometimes they had lots of books. Um, yeah, libraries are important. Which, and that's one of the things I right, always right. love to look for at One Room School Museums is what they have for their their bookshelves in their library. Sort of the, some of the neatest ones I've seen are kind of built in cupboards, but a lot of times, as you say, it's just one little tiny sad shelf. And sometimes with the glass front, sometimes not, depending on the school. And it depends on whether it was a fairly wealthy township or whether it was a township that really struggled. I, I remember reading one school superintendent's report that was or just a note scribbled on the back of a photograph of this really run-down school, and it was a bunch of tenant farmers' children that went there. And he said, this school, although run-down and lacking the equipment that you need for a proper education has a wonderful teacher. It is spotless. The children take great pride in their school. And you look at the at the children lined up, and you could tell that they had on their best clothes, and these weren't they they were pretty raggy clothes, and they had smiles on their faces, as as well as dirt. But they they were proud of their school, and they had good education going on despite their lack of equipment. Mm-hmm. So going back to what was on the standard school, so you had qualities of the teacher, you had sanitary measures, and also heating and ventilation. Um, there's a couple of people that I know that are real concerned about the location of windows and lighting in the schools because somebody did research once that you're only supposed to have light from one side of the building, and so mm-hmm. some schools were boarding up windows, and that was only in certain locations that they did that. Um, Lots of schools just had light coming in from both sides. Um, Some schools had electricity, some didn't, and so did they have kerosene lamps or did they have um, candles? Did they just quit school when it got dark? You know, lighting was an issue a little bit with that. Um, Desks, books, 
there's also other kinds of equipment. As we got into the 1910s and 20s, they were looking for things like sandboxes. This is a, a raised table with sand in it, mm-hmm. and this came out of John Dewey's progressive education. And so the kids could have some hands-on. They could um, make letters and uh, rivers and streams for relief maps and things like that with a sandbox. Yeah. My mother yeah. told me that she had to sit under the sandbox when she was in kindergarten. She wasn't old enough to go to school but because her sister was the teacher and there wasn't anybody else to take care of her. So no. you will find sandboxes um, kind of in the 1910s, 1920s, 1930s, 1940s. And, and I just want to interrupt you uh, there for a minute. Uh, well, I just interrupt you for a second about the sandboxes because uh, when I first heard about there being sandboxes in here, I mean, I had a sandbox when I was a kid. I was kind of like, big whoop, it's just some dumb little thing you play in. But they did some really elaborate dioramas using these things. And some of them were, were quite large, and they would include water features, and they would build three-dimensional, you know, like houses and stuff to talk about, like, things that are going on in social studies to act out stories. I mean, they were really sort of the smart boards of their day. They they really did some incredible things with this. And that's one of the things that I have been uh, gathering pictures on is the, as I try and find them in teaching magazines or stuff is examples of how they use these sandboxes because I know it doesn't sound like it, but it really was impressive if you can, can see some of that. Okay, go on. Musical Great hands-on, yeah, great hands-on <laughs> learning. And, yeah. well, a lot of the hand, the learning was hands-on. Of course, they would listen, but they would also do things. Um, and, of course, I was interested in the musical equipment. Did the school have a piano or a Victrola or a pump organ? Um, did they have art materials? Lots of times they would um, do sewing on cards with um, – thick yarn or shoelaces, and they would mm-hmm. trace the patterns. Um, and when I was a child, they even had these, and or I don't know, maybe my mother got this from when she was she was younger, but they were the the easy sewing cards that we did. And mm-hmm. I know that, that they had those in the one-room school and their art equipment. Um, whether they had different kinds of paper, oh, they would sometimes draw elaborate drawings on the chalkboard using mm-hmm. various kinds of chalk especially um, if they were lucky enough to have a camera that could take a photograph inside of the class. You'll often see some really elaborate drawings on the chalkboard. And there was a class that teachers took at the normal school on how to write on the chalkboard, how to write and draw on the chalkboard, which I thought was very interesting. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to think of what else is on the what what could be a typical – oh, the grounds. The building and grounds. Is the building in good repair? Is – is there any kind of um, water stream that's a hazard? Do they have trees planted? Um, is is the grass mowed? Is there playground equipment and is it safe? Now, back back in the day, they would have all kinds of interesting playground equipment, like a giant yes. stride, which is basically a swing up on a big flagpole. Oh, and did they have a flagpole? Hmm, yes, we need to see. That That could have gotten them a point or two on their standard school chart. Mm-hmm. Um, little metal merry-go-rounds, swings, teeter-totters, all, all of the equipment that's pretty much banned from uh, today's <laughs> playgrounds for safety reasons. They That's the kind of playground equipment that they had. Did they have room to run and play um, softball or kickball? Those were also popular games. 
to play as well. So there's lots of things to look at equipment-wise. Um, okay. And in Ohio, I was very shocked to see what they could earn if they had a lot of points. And there were things like uh, measuring cups of different sizes made out of, of metal. There was agricultural equipment. Um, there were things like hanging globes that you could get. You could get the nice library case, and mm-hmm. just a, a whole list of interesting things that they could order with the with the points that they got in from their standard schools. Well, that is sort of a different take because the other schools, I think, mostly it was um, you'd get money of some some amount. So it is interesting that they were doing things instead, especially things that would count as more points towards the next year. Right, right. And there were um, many awards given for standard schools, but in some states there was also many awards given to consolidate the school. Yeah. So that that one worked both ways. And, in fact, in Pennsylvania, I know that there's still some school districts that are getting money uh, state incentive, or maybe they've taken it out in the last 10 years, but there used to be state incentive to have a consolidated school. Mm-hmm. And so that just depends on which state you're, you are looking at, too. And some schools, some states just set it up that your schools were in townships, and others mm-hmm. set it up differently. So you have um, school districts that are bridging townships or towns, even. And uh, if people are are interested in a one-room school that they go to for a museum or something is a standard school, a lot of times, uh, I think it's mostly across states, isn't it? They'll have some kind of plaque that they were awarded that usually they'll they'll still have them that'll say standard school or superior school or something like that. So that's something to be looking for. I know that that's the case in Iowa, and I know that Illinois had plaques for the standard schools. I'm not sure how many other states actually had plaques for that or some other notification. Oh, sometimes you actually got points if you had a clock that worked and <laughs> if you had hot lunch. And that's I know yes. that's one of your areas of interest. Mm-hmm. And if you had pictures of um, Washington and Lincoln on and other pictures, you got picture points for your artwork. And so lots of schools would have Washington. Um, Lincoln more in the northern states, not so much in the south, um, obviously. And if you had a flag inside as well as outside. So these are some other things that could go on the standard school movement, which I thought was kind of interesting because they were trying to improve the quality of the schools. And and, And in no place that I've looked did they ever look at the achievement of the students. They didn't they didn't count how many students graduated from eighth grade because they all took an eighth grade graduation test. They could have they could have put the test scores in there had they wanted to, and they didn't. Well, it was. I think that that might be a better system than the one that that we're looking at. Because the problem with doing testing as your main measure is you in a in a school where you're taking in everybody. It's hard to to judge the teacher on the efforts that the students are making. It is a difficult question. I don't think we've come up with a good right. answer for it yet. Right, oh. and I just I was just thinking about some of the testing measures that we deal with now, and that this had absolutely it didn't even have a line on the standard school forms of the mm-hmm. past. 
I might have uh, another research project in there. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like it. Okay, so so why don't you sort of give us an idea of what equipment would there be in a typical one-room school uh, from the information you looked at? So if you were a teacher rotating into a different school, what could you reasonably expect to find? Okay, let's just take 1920s, 1930s as okay. just, a, just an example. Um, All right. Before the 1900s, you might not have desks. It might be what was called a blab school. This is where the teacher talked and the students would talk back. And the students would just be sitting on a bench with no back on it, and there would be no place for them to write. So that would be typical there. And typically in those schools, they might have a raised platform for the teacher. There's probably going to be some kind of slate or chalkboard on one wall, maybe not two, um, may or may not have a lot of of windows in this type of school. If you are in like the 1920s era, you're probably going to have windows on both sides. It's probably going to be a boxcar shaped school. Um, you're probably going to have desks that are bolted down to the floor. Most of them will have wrought iron on them unless you're in a poorer district then they'll be they might be homemade just out of wood. Or if you're in a, a forested area, they might just make them out of out of wood as well. There will be a teacher's desk. Now, in the standard school reports that I, I wrote, read, a lot of them would say that the desks would be in poor shape. So they had bought the desks maybe at the turn of the century or 20 years before, and they're still using them. You're probably going to have some kind of a heating system. Most of the schools at this time had uh, a stove in the middle. It may or may not be the the hot belly stove of, of our nostalgia. It may be a furnace in the basement, and you're probably going to, you, know, you may or may not have electricity, and you may or may not have running water. You are probably going to have outhouses at that point. You're probably going to have uh, uh, enough area for the children to run and play outside. You're... Um, you might have a cloakroom system where the boys are on one side and the girls are on the other. Now, that's been a little bit that there's a, a door for the boys and a door for the girls. That's in some places. There's an awful lot of places that everybody just uses the same door, and it might be one door going in and one door going out, or just everybody just uses – there's just one door, and that's what you would find. Um, and after there's too, been some the – and I think, too, uh, not only is that a reason to have two doors, the boys and girls thing, but just if you don't have very good insulation, having that cloakroom set up so you have a single door coming into a, a wall and right. then the doors on the sides just is a, a wind-cutting measure as much as anything else because that really kind of provides a stop rather than letting the wind blow right in, which having dealt with a lot of historic village buildings uh, when I worked at the historic village, that wind comes right back in in the winter, and anything that you can do to provide a stop is good. Yes, it, it certainly is. And um, in some schools, you're, I mean, you're going to find different kinds of things. Um, my mother just sent me a message saying that she said, what's a bubbler? And so I said, you have to tune in and find out. She says, is it for water? Both, she says, both dad and I, had, they, were too, they were little. They didn't ever get to do this, but um, 
my dad went to town school in second grade, and my mother, I think she graduated from eighth grade in country school, but they let the boys lug the water, and they went to the neighbor's farm and filled up a bucket with the well outside and pumped the water in and, and brought it to school, and then everybody had a dipper and drank out of the dipper. Um, There's some sanitary water laws that came after that, and I won't reveal how old my mother is, but I was surprised that she had a bucket, um, and that, that every child had to have either their own tin cup or what was called a bubbler. And so you, you put the water into uh, uh, either a ceramic jar that had a spigot, or you would use the dipper and then then put it in the water so the children weren't sharing the same dipper. They were basically drinking out of the dipper. Um, so water was a problem, and so was electricity. Sometimes they would borrow electricity from a neighbor's farm for an evening program, and sometimes you would have both, sometimes you would have neither. So expectations are kind of hard to come by. Sometimes uh, you might have a lot of books, sometimes you might not have very many at all. But desks, some kind of heating device, and you may have to make your own fire, there. Um, occasionally the the people who lived on the farm nearby might have done that, but usually that was um that was done by the teacher when, when they came in. So it might have been cold when they came in. And then they'd try to have to bank the fire overnight and keep that keep that safe so the school wouldn't burn down. And there were lots of school fires. Um mm-hmm. and, and that's another reason that they'd have two doors sometimes, too, would be for safety. So if you couldn't get out of one, you could get out of the other one. And there there are some sad tales about um, schoolhouse fires on days of programs and people couldn't get out and and um, they had had a kerosene lamp turn over or candles or something caught fire. And um, very few, very few schools had um, both electricity and running water and indoor toilets. So those things that we take for granted, they they really didn't have. Um, you might have two out of the three. <laughs> okay, so um, was there a lot of difference that you found in the equipment between poor schools and rich schools? Oh, it was incredible. Absolutely incredible because sometimes in a in a poor school you might have um, wooden benches with maybe there would be a, like like a table ledge along the wall and the students would face that to write write on and then you would have some schools there weren't even one room schools in small towns and, and in cities and they would have the exact same equipment that a consolidated school would have wrought iron fancy desks. They would have. They would probably have a hot lunch cart or hot lunch kitchen type setup. Not mm-hmm. like what we think of. It has more to do with the with the heating system. They may have a basement that was dug under, and they could have a playroom in the basement so that when it was cold, that students could still um, have some physical exercise. Mm-hmm. And the furnace would usually be in there. Mm-hmm. Um, there's just. You wouldn't imagine the the disparities that you could have between a, a poor school and a, a well-funded school, and it's it's interesting to look at. Um, 
And it's interesting to see whether in certain states, certain times, teachers would be rewarded for staying in these schools and helping to make them standard schools. But in other states, people were rewarded to go to a consolidated school or to go to a bigger school district because the pay was so much more. So that's a difference that you're going to find across state lines, too. There was something going on um, called the Country Life Movement, Mm -hmm. And when this was going on, living in the country was was just exemplified because, you know, there's so much pollution in the cities. If you think about what Pittsburgh was like in mm -hmm. the 1910s, 1920s with all of the smokestacks and all the refineries, um, people were encouraged to go out and live in the country and take advantage of the fresh air and the healthiness and you could grow your, your own garden. And the schools that were devised on that plan might even have what they called a teacherage, kind of like mm -hmm. a parsonage for a, a pastor, but it was a teacherage. So there was a little teacher house alongside the one-room schoolhouse. And then you would have, you know, the picket fences, and they would have gardens that went with the schoolhouse, and they would have all kinds of um, groves of trees and shrubs and, and, and lovely nature architecture and just wonderful things out in the country to celebrate the country life movement. And if you look at, and if you find one of those schools, then you're going to see some of the riches that you would see in a town school or in a, in a wealthy school. And I think that it's kind of interesting that there's not a lot known about that movement. And it, mm -hmm. was, it was from the federal government. And mm -hmm. I think that it was a really good idea. And it's, it, it's something that probably needs some more research. So if somebody is near a school that had a teacherage on it, that would probably be your first indicator that that was built during the, the country life movement because many times the, the school, in lots of states there was a little section of a township that was given to the school and there's usually a church and a school and lots of times they were two miles apart and the money for that was, was given to fund um, education in the state or for something else, depends on what state you're in. And um, you can tell, like, when you drive through Kansas, if you are on the road that goes through that section, you will see a little clapboard church and a clapboard school or sometimes combined every two miles on the money because they had planned it out that way. Now, in lots of other places, the schools were not necessarily two miles apart in that township system. It was they, they would put them where they needed them. And sometimes they would move the schools, which was kind mm -hmm. of interesting, too, because then the equipment, of course, went with the school. And if the one farmer had seven kids, they might move the school over closer to that farm. And then everybody else would walk or take horses in. So, yeah, it's, it's, in, it's interesting to see what you find and what you don't find. It. Yeah, there's a lot. You can't really generalize that you will find this in a one-room school. If somebody's mm -hmm. looking at something in their local area, they might want to read newspaper accounts or look at the the school board records or the school district records and, of course, go to their local county historical society. Most counties have one. Or to their local library to see what kinds of um, materials have been kept. And um, it's interesting to look at the old newspapers because you'll see lots of accounts of schools in the newspapers. 
Well, uh, I think you're right that the, the country life movement uh, really does deserve a lot more research, both in schools and other things. In fact, uh, Laura Ingalls Wilder's writings to the Missouri Ruralist were kind of part of that, but it's almost like there was sort of two movements. There, there were the people that lived in the country and were trying to make the life better, and then there were the people um, from outside in the urban areas that kind of looked down on the country life and were trying to make it more town-like. So it's it's kind of interesting to see the, the play for that. But, yeah, definitely something of, of interest. And um, But as uh, we were talking about a little bit earlier about the desks, that's probably a piece of equipment that most people notice first when they, they walk into a classroom. Uh, did you find out anything else of interest about them except they didn't like the double-sided ones? or the double desks? Well, it's interesting because our, our big expert on school desks is Suzanne up at, up at Livonia, and she has photographed just about everything. That, that I mean, it's amazing to see her collections, and some of them are wrought iron, and they have um, different dimensions. So most of the time, the typical desk will have a bench, and then on the back of the bench is the desk, portion for the person behind them. So they're hooked up together that way. And they'll usually be on uh, what, what would look like a sleigh because you're on two strips of wood, and that's how it's mounted to the floor typically. And so there's not much wiggling around in the desk. A desk typically, um, it could lift up and you could have storage in there, or it could just be a writing surface. It was typically a bench as a seat. Sometimes they flipped up, sometimes they didn't. Um, most of the time you had some kind of wrought iron to make it sturdy and to last. Um, there may or may not have been an inkwell. I have seen desks that have slots for um, slates to go in, for the students would write answers on slates and they could put their slates in that slot. Um, Lots of times they were slanted. Now, when you got closer to when consolidation was happening in the 1950s, you may have the same exact desks that a town school would have, and they would be a self-contained desk, and they probably were not attached to the floor. So it was really hard to move things around. I have some singing games that were designed to be done with school desks in place in between the partners. So they would hold their hands over their desks and 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 skip forward and then skip back. And they couldn't just have space in the in the school to do like a circle game it would be really difficult because you'd probably have um the furnace or the pot belly stove would get in the way mm-hmm. and the desks wouldn't be able to be moved either. Huh. I hadn't thought about that, but you're right. Circle games would kind of be out unless you could go outside. And most of the time they did go outside, yeah. So uh, another piece that uh, people strongly associate with one-room schoolhouses is the dunce cap. What did you find about that? You know, there's not a lot of evidence of a dunce cap being used. So I believe that that came through from some cartoons that were very popular at the time. In in the newspaper, they would have a cap and it would say dunce on it. Um, I don't hear – it's very rare to hear a report of, of a child wearing a dunce cap. I probably know fewer than – what I can put on one hand. Um, Typical punishments might have included being put in the corner, though, because usually that's where the dense cap goes with the corner in in the 
nostalgic view. Um, sometimes students would have to put their nose on the, the blackboard and stand there for a while, and oftentimes there was a hickory switch, so you, you might have you got a whooping, um, and you might have had to have cut your own. So that, that part was talked about much more than the dense cap. So I, I found really no evidence of a dense cap. I haven't seen one ever that was of, of the time periods and in accounts, not even in teacher diaries or student diaries. And if somebody had to wear one, that might be diary worthy, I think, in today's, yeah. today's world. You know, you'd make a Facebook status on that. <laughs> and I just haven't seen much of it. And I know that people who have really done research and have have done oral histories with people, we're not finding much evidence of the dense cap either. There are some political cartoons and some other kinds of cartoons that you might find in newspapers that depict them. Um, and that's about the only evidence that there is of that one. So we can maybe squelch that myth. That would be a good thing. Yes, it would. And I think that is something that that has just sort of wormed its way in. I I think I've I've talked to one person who said they had one in their school, and I've talked to a lot of people who've been at one-room schools. So I think it is just something that that has sort of creeped in there. Although humiliation as a tool was um, certainly used. Well used. Oh, yeah. because it really was sort of more of a community that you were part of so you it, it was a bigger deal to be be you know put in the corner or done something like that than it probably would be for for students today and also because these were remember your your neighbors and your relatives in the classroom with you so the chances on your folks not finding out that you were in trouble at school for even a minor thing is pretty much none Zero. Yep. yep. Zero. It's it, it it would get back faster than you would. So yep. that's 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 something that that is um interesting with the one room schools. You know, the other piece of mythology that goes around are those rules for teachers, you know, about oh, how gosh. it makes yeah, I don't know, fifteen cents a day and you have to bank your own fire and you can't date and you can't be married and, and one of the banes that, of that my thing. existence. And that might have might have been the rules in one school but it's not it's not a universal contract with teachers. I've seen all kinds of teachers' contracts from all kinds of eras in all kinds of locations, and I haven't seen something specific like that spelled out in any of them. So that's that's yeah. a nice little piece of artwork that people float around the internet and post yeah. on their school and and it's and you really need to find out where was that from? Was that from a town school? We don't even know if it's a one room school. It might have been a town school that had those rules. It yeah. might have been someplace else. Yeah. Yeah, I think it really from what I can tell, I think that particular lovely little made up thing, the rules for teachers of eighteen seventy two, it was uh written in either the nineteen forties or the nineteen fifties, about the same time that, that stupid little survey came out about what are the 10 problems in in schools today and you know in the original version they were chewing gum or something and then they were saying you know guns in school in the modern version it it really it's it's it I think it's mostly just made up in fact I actually got a co- it it was actually going around a lot before the internet I found all sorts of versions of it in various newsletters and things, but none before the 40s. Oh, yeah. 
And uh, the I even found one version of it that was rewritten to be rules for librarians. But except for going through and changing just a couple minute things and putting in librarian every time it said teacher, it was the same set of rules. And and they oh. they had this. They said it was the rules. The place I got it from said it was the rules from their library. But the uh, but they didn't have the original. They just had this newsletter from again like the 40s or 50s mimeographed uh, thing that someone had written up. And it's like, yeah, I I really don't think that that was anybody's rules anytime. But yeah, that is certainly something that's floating around out there. And it's the bane of my existence. I keep trying to talk people out of selling it and having it displayed, and even some of my friends do. And I'm just uh, the bane of my existence. Well, if there were more truth to it, maybe we wouldn't <laughs> mind so much that it wasn't documented as to where yes. and when. Well, when they say, but it doesn't mm-hmm. say where. But a lot of that is is pure. I don't know. It's it's not. It's it may have been true for one place at one time, but I I highly doubt it. Yes. So. Okay. Well, now I've gone off of my soapbox about that. <laughs> Since you're interested <laughs> in music, let's talk some about the music equipment they had in schools. Now you said that uh, your your uh, grandmother wasn't particularly musical. So so what did you find that she did? Well, she had a, a teaching book from Charles Fullerton who developed a way to teach music using the wind-up Victrola. Charles Fullerton, and the Iowan the, guy. Yay. He's, he's the one from Iowa, yes. and he taught at Iowa State Teachers College, which is now the University of Northern Iowa, and his archives are up there, um, and just about the whole state, plus at least 27 other states had adopted his teaching method. And it was the first music textbook that was coded to um, recordings, which I think is interesting because I try to teach my music ed majors not to use recordings because they can sing it themselves. In the case of the one-room school teacher, they could not sing it themselves. Or maybe if they could, they needed help with it. And so the students would actually have, it was part of our, our a little bit of a testing movement. They could, if they could sing the song with the recording, then they got a plus on it, and they could be in the county choir for that song. And if they got to be in 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 Iowa, it's called the Iowa Choir Plan. If they passed all ten songs, then they could go to the state fair and sing in the state fair chorus. And there were several thousand students that did this um, through the '30s. They had this, and then. Um, the depression came in too strong and they couldn't keep it up. Um, and Fullerton got to be rather elderly. So um, it was kind of an interesting thing that I've got their lists of songs. I just talked about it with my graduate class on, on curriculum just this last week. And I said, so is this 10 songs make a curriculum? Well, no, but it's a start. And for the one-room schools where they didn't have a teacher, they would have 10 songs. And he chose well. He chose good folk songs and songs that were appropriate for children in ages, um, grades four through eight. And then he had a junior choir song list for children that were in the lower grades that they could sing easier songs like Mary Had a Little Lamb. Those would be the songs for that level. So did the songs um, change a, every year? I guess I never yeah, asked you that. Yeah, he had a series of eight. Yeah. He had a list of eight 
eight different years. And so um, they they would get new songs. So by the time you graduate eighth grade, you should know 80 songs minimum because that was just for the choir plan. And then you could do, of course, other things. You know, listening to the radio was popular. And, in fact, in Wisconsin, they could get their music instruction over the air on um, Journeys in Music Land with Edgar B. Gordon. And that was a very popular show. There's also another syndicated one on uh, CBS and with Walter Domrush, and there were some other radio innovations that would go on. So hopefully your school had a radio and mm-hmm. a Victrola, so you could you could use these. And I do know that there were teachers that took their own radios or Victrolas into the schools, just like today. If your school doesn't have something, usually just buy it yourself and take it in with mm-hmm. you. It's too bad that we're still doing those things. Um, so that's how I think she taught. I don't have evidence from her school and her school records or any letters that she wrote that she actually had a Victrola in her classroom, but I have her course notes and and her book, and I think that she probably did that. And I know that her book was really important to her. She used it a lot. It's well-worn. It's well-worn. Well, well-worn. Well, I always like the story you tell about your dad and what he discovered about music when they went into the, the town school. Oh, when he went to town school, yeah, he said that, he says, you know what, I got to third grade, I went to town school, and the songs don't slow down at the end. And that was from the, when he was in country school, they didn't have electricity. They had the wind-up Victrola, so the songs slowed down at the end. So that was that was just a funny, funny little memory that he had from when he was eight. Yeah, I love that. Um, now, just we're kind of, let's see how long. We had six minutes left, but I wanted to talk about this stuff a little bit more. Um, so mm-hmm. if you, do you want to talk a little bit about, pianos versus organs in one-room schools? Mm, Sure. Well, at the turn of the 20th century, the pump organ was a lot less expensive and a lot more portable than the piano. So more of the schools would have a pump organ, especially if the school was also used on the weekend for church services. And so you would have a a pump organ. If... um, and this was at the at the very turn of the century. The piano got to be a little less expensive and more popular, but still very, very heavy. So you started to see more pianos in schools. Um, but it was a good mix of piano versus pump organ, and it might have depended on whether there was a family in the community that had one that they would donate to the school or whether the school would, would buy one itself. But the, it, I was surprised as an organist at how many pump organs that there were in schools, and part of the reason why was because the school was also used as a church on Sunday. It was probably also used for township meetings and other things like that, too, as well. And uh, the last music thing I wanted to ask you a little bit about was, had you found much evidence of rhythm bands? Because this is something my my great aunt was involved with at her one room school where they even had these little capy uniform things and they were each had sort of a little rhythm instrument. So had you found much was that a very common phenomenon? In Wisconsin it was. Um at least it's some of the, some of the materials that I've looked at in local histories, there's pictures of them all caped up in Wisconsin. Now this was much more common in town schools. And again, this is 
this is happening in the 19, late 19, 1920s, late 1930s, 1940s, and then it mm-hmm. still kept going through the 50s and 60s. Um, a bit, and then it died out a little bit. But there were some one-room schools in Illinois and Wisconsin, especially that that did rhythm band, and um, it was also popular in the kindergartens. So that's and what this is is they would um, play little cymbals and sticks and drums to recorded music. And so the children would sound like they were in a little band, but it was just rhythm instruments. And so all the cymbals would play at one time, and then the the child conductor would point to the drums, and then they would all play, and then the sticks would play, and they would they would have turns with the recorded music. Well, I just always find it so interesting because she looks. I mean, for for. For her, she just looks so glamorous there in her little hat and her little cape. So I'm always interested in that. Um, so we're just about out of time here. But the last question that I wanted to make sure that we got in, if someone was uh, interested in researching one-room schools in in a particular school or a particular aspect of one-room schools, where would you recommend that they start to research since you've done research on a lot of individual schools? Mm-hmm. Well, they can contact me for for additional help, but I would start looking at Andrew Guilford's um, America's Country School Houses book. Um, that's that's the the biggest resource for the whole United States. Um, I would also go to the local historical society and then see if the school still has any records. So it might be with the school, it might be with the county government. And then if you don't find anything in your local historical society, go to the county and then go to the state because you'll probably find more things at the state level since education is a state's rights issue. You're gonna Don't go to the Library of Congress first off. It's a, it's a <laughs> hard place to start a research project. It's a place that you, you go to um, clean up your holes <laughs> in your research and um, specific things and start talking to the people that might have gone to that school if they're still around and see if they have anything in their closets or their basements or their attics. Um, that's a place that you find a lot of these artifacts. I actually look on eBay still for some artifacts and books and things about one-room schools, so you could look there or other online services that are of historic nature. So that's probably the first place that I would start. I was at a real disadvantage because I was looking at music in one-room schools all over the place. All of the archives in historical societies are set up to look for one location or one very specific person. So if you know the people that went there, you might be able to look them up too, and you might hit a jackpot and find a teacher diary, which would be great. So... It definitely is a doable project. It's something, if people are interested in one-room schools, it it, it may not be the easiest thing in the world because of, you know, those laws that we mentioned that get ignored about where the records have ended up, But and some of them are just lost. But for most schools, it is doable if you're willing to put in the work and, and do a lot of digging and um mm-hmm. Pam and I are both members of the Country School Association of America, and uh, it's definitely, I think, well worth it your time to uh, get involved with that if you're interested in one-room schools. Sounds great. Oh, and don't forget to go to your local antique store and estate sales because you never know what you find there. 
Yeah, and sometimes you do just have to buy some history to save it. Yep, <laughs> I've done that before, <laughs> and I think you have too. Yes. <laughs> so we've got about 30 seconds left. Anything else that we didn't get touched on? Oh, there's so much. <laughs> there's so much. We could talk about playground games on another day or yes. or um, other things. You know, there's there's just a lot to cover with one-room schools. It's a very interesting subject because we didn't even really talk about what people learn or how. Oh. Well, I think maybe we'll have to have you back for another episode. Thank you so much for coming on, Pam Stover, and we really appreciate it. And I'm sure everybody enjoyed it today. Thanks, Sarah. All right, and uh, thank you. And remember to tune in to February 7th. It's going to be our Laura Ingalls Wilder on-air birthday party. And uh, we will see you hopefully before that, but if not, on Laura's birthday. And have a great rest of your weekend. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.